Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In 1 Peter 3, Starting in verse 8, Peter is going to start talking in a way that sounds really warm and affectionate to us, because he's going to start talking about something near and dear to our heart, which is unity. We talk at Grace about how much we long for more community, uh, for the bonds that we have to be tighter and tighter, closer together. So Peter is going to start talking in those ways, and, and you should find that encouraging, but he's going to continue and he's going to show that when he talks about that embrace of community, that when he sees that that circle of harmony, he sees it as being something wider than we typically do. He intends to include people within it that we typically would not. So let's look at the words of Peter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So that turn, when he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, he's picking up on something he told us earlier about Jesus. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. He's telling us to love our enemies, to love our enemies. Not just to be one as a church body, not just to love those who love us, but to love those who give offense, to bless those who curse us. And then he quotes a psalm to support this idea. And the psalm he quotes is Psalm 34, which is a beautiful psalm. You should make a note of it and go back and read the whole thing. It's the one that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But here he quotes from a little further on in that Psalm, these are the words, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's ears are open the prayer of the righteous. Remember earlier in chapter 3, in what we looked at last time, at the end of verse 7, he says that husbands and wives should live in harmony so that your prayers may not be hindered. So the same idea, that God hears the prayers of the righteous, but of the unrighteous, the wicked, those who do evil, their prayers are hindered. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil whether they do the evil originally or they do it in response to the evil that was done to them. The hardest calling in the Christian life is the call to love. And the hardest love is to love your enemies. The hardest love is to love your enemies. But as Christians, we are called to love our enemies. This is Peter summing up our Christian duty. And when he sums it up, when he comes to the end, when he says, finally, to bring all of this together, the point that he wants to leave us with is that we can't repay evil for evil. 
that when we're cursed, we must not curse in return, but rather we must bless. When Peter says these words, he's saying something that would have been very familiar also to the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaks of this same virtue, loving your enemies. He says in chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Then in verses 20 and 21 of Romans 12, Paul says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When Peter and Paul speak this way, all they're doing is being faithful to the, the teaching of Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher. Because Jesus had taught them exactly these things. When they'd sat at his feet, when he'd gone to the mount and preached, given the Beatitudes, he starts talking about the relationship between a believer and his enemies. These are the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. In these words of Peter and Paul and above all of Jesus, you have encapsulated uh, the whole of the Christian ethic. Like the way that we're meant to live is found here. The principles are here. The idea of turning the other cheek, right? When someone comes and, and offends against you, rather than seeking to get your own back, turn the other cheek. The golden rule, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't treat people the way they deserve to be treated. Treat them the way you hope to be treated yourself. You should give to others generously without regard to their merit whether they deserve it or not. And you should give without an expectation of reward. Your generosity shouldn't be an investment in people that you hope will pay off for you later down the line. All of which is really just another way of saying that the Christian ethic, the Christian life consists in shaping your behavior after the example of the Father. 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says there's no credit, there's no benefit in loving those who love you. Yet if we're honest, even that can be hard. Even that can be hard. The implication is it's easy. Even sinners love those who love them. But the reality is sometimes even those who love us can be difficult to love. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter used a similar kind of logic when he was talking about enduring suffering. Remember that? He said that when you do wrong and you suffer as a result, when you have a just punishment, if you happen to endure that, there's no credit for that. God's not going to look down and pat you on the back for, for patiently enduring the suffering that you brought down on your head. That's not our calling. Our calling is something more than that, which is to endure unjust suffering. To endure unjust suffering. Same principle here. To love those who love us, there's no reward in that. There's no credit in that. Of course you should love those who love you, but you're being asked to do something farther down the line of difficulty than that. Something kind of higher than that. Not to love those who love you, but to love those who hate you. That's a little bit different. It's a lot different, I suppose. It's hard for us at times, though, even to love those who love us. It's hard to be generous with others, even when we have plenty to give. And even when they are looking to give back to us. We have to work hard at loving our families. Now, we've talked about this recently. You know, last time looking at Peter and those family relationships, it's not easy. It can be hard work to love your family. Hard work to be generous to your friends. And because of that, when we manage to do it, we often congratulate ourselves. Right? If we have a good week, we're not that terrible to our family. Our friends have needs and, and we, you know, meet them as, as much as we can without being inconvenienced. We can come to church and congratulate ourselves that in comparison to most people, we're actually quite good, quite loving. And that is the rug that Peter, Paul, and Jesus are pulling out from under our feet. Saying that's not actually impressive at all. That's not impressive at all. The standard has been set much higher than that. We must love the ones who hate us. We must bless the ones who curse us. And when he quotes that psalm, if you, if you seek a blessing, give a blessing. Right? That's, that's actually built into the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed. Right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That, that reciprocity. Right? We, we act, we live the way that we hope ourselves to be treated. You want to be blessed, you must bless the ones who curse you. I think one of the most stirring examples of this kind of thing, stirring maybe because it just feels so exceptional, is when you, you see instances where people have been truly hurt, when real evil has been done to them. Not, not you know, they've been inconvenienced or insulted or something like that, mocked, but, but real harm has been done. I think of families of murder victims who somehow find within themselves the grace to forgive the one who took their loved one away from them. You know, I write crime novels in my spare time, whenever that is. My first novel was actually obsessed with that idea of, of like 
forgiving the one who takes your life. And it's always seemed to me like a highest expression of this principle that Peter, Paul, and Jesus are talking about. It's been almost two years. It'll be two years in June since uh, the events of the summer of 2015 in Charleston, South Carolina. A 21-year-old white supremacist entered into the historic Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. He sat down in a Bible study, and you have to imagine he was the odd man out. But the people accepted him. They, 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 they drew him into their community. And for about an hour, he sat with them as they talked about the Word. And after that, he, he stood up and he spewed some hateful things and, and began to open fire and killed nine people and wounded many others. It's a horrible Horrible tragedy in the midst of other horrible tragedies. It's easy to say, love your enemies. But imagine if something like that were to happen to us. We say, love your enemies, and and we imagine our enemies being people who've done a little bit to irritate us. But it's hard to love your enemies when they really are enemies. When they really have inflicted terrible and undeserved pain and grief. But at a bond hearing, when the uh, killer was present, it was striking that members of the, the families of these victims, as they were allowed to address the man who had killed their loved ones, that they found the grace to offer forgiveness. That they forgave the one They blessed the one who had done so much to curse them. And they faced criticism for it afterwards. The people in that moment who found the grace to forgive the man who had taken so much from them faced criticism that they had reacted poorly to this. That they shouldn't have rushed to forgive. That they should have been angry instead. I think they probably were angry but they were also determined not to repay reviling for reviling, to bless those who cursed. That, I think, is is the beauty and the difficulty of this calling. To bless those who really curse you. To us, is an inconceivable thing. It's remarkable, I think, because it happens seemingly so infrequently. In the aftermath of that event, uh, Robert Barron, writing in First Things, reflected on the meaning of Jesus' teaching in a, in a situation like this. He, he wrote these words, In stressing love of enemies and generosity to those who cannot answer in kind, Jesus is urging his followers to break free of the economy of exchange, which simply reinforces egotism and violence. In other words, answering back with whatever you give, loving those who love you. Hating those who hate you reinforces your egotism and violence. Furthermore, he's proposing tests of love. The willing of the good of the other as other. Like I will good for the other person as they are. Not that I I want to bless them if they will come up to my standard. If they will be what I want them to be, then I will bless them. But to bless them, to will the good of the other as other within the context of a fallen world, even those acts that seem most disinterested are often indirectly 
the advantage of the one who does them. Therefore, Jesus commands generous acts precisely toward those who cannot or will not return the favor. Jesus commands us to show love, to give blessing to those who cannot or will not return it. I wish that I could say for certain that in a similar test of love, I would do like those families did. It's easy to tell yourself you would. Until you're tested, you don't truly know. Until you've experienced that pain, it's difficult to say. I know how hard it is, once you've been truly hurt, not to answer the blow with another blow. I know how hard it is when you've been truly hurt not to seek to get your own back, to retaliate in some way, to vindicate yourselves. And if that's hard, then how can we bring ourselves to love even our enemies? How is it possible? Well, when seeing eye to eye is impossible, try looking down at your enemies from above. Try looking down at your enemies from above. And if you could answer your enemies face to face, what would you say? I mean, those families in Charleston had a unique opportunity to actually speak to the person who had, had, had killed their loved ones. They could speak to him face to face. We don't always get the chance. Right? There are people who hurt us, who do evil to us, who sabotage us, and we never get that reckoning. You never get to, to gather them all together in one place and, and let them know just what you think. But imagine that you could. Everyone who's ever done you wrong, who's ever hurt you, who's ever slighted you, who's underestimated you, who's lied about you, who stabbed you in the back, all of those people, imagine getting them all together in one room. We'd need a bigger room, I'm sure. And you could come up here and you could say to them, you could speak truth to them, and they would have to hear it. What would you say? What would you say? Most of us dream of a chance like that, but not so that we could show forgiveness. We have other motives. How many movies have you seen about forgiveness compared to how many you've seen about revenge? So many of the stories that we tell, like the inciting incident, is the wrong that is done to the main character that justifies the whirlwind of revenge that follows. And we cheer, we root for, as one enemy after another is vanquished, destroyed, humiliated. We cheer for it because we have those same hopes ourselves. We cheer for the ones who pay back the evil tenfold. But imagine you had the chance. What would you say? Peter has written our text for us. He had that chance. On the day of Pentecost, the Jewish diaspora, the people, the tribes who had been spread across the world, gathered together in Jerusalem. And as they were gathered together in this place, gathered together with them were the crowds, the people who not so long ago had cried out for the blood of Jesus, who had said, crucify him. And Peter now finds himself in unique circumstances, able not only to speak to all these people to their face, 
to say the truth to them, but miraculously, through the power of the Holy Spirit, nobody there could say they didn't understand what was being said to them. It's a unique opportunity to just speak the truth to all your enemies. Right? The crowds who seemed anonymous, who seemed like they could get away with anything when they were together, crying out for Jesus to be judicially murdered. Now Peter has the upper hand. Peter will speak truth to them. Right? Peter can tell them what's really going on. Peter can tell them about the fiery judgment that awaits them, the payback, the revenge. For what you did to my master, I won't sleep until it's been paid back tenfold. This could have been the beginning of a great Quentin Tarantino movie, which Peter, over a period of time, takes out all of the Sanhedrin and then starts working his way up until the climactic scene where he confronts Pontius Pilate. Imagine how fun that would be. But it's not what Peter does. When all his enemies are gathered together and Peter has the power to speak to them, Peter shares grace with them. Peter preaches the gospel to them. He gives them not condemnation, but hope. And how can he do this to the people who killed his friends and Lord? It's not because he didn't hold them responsible. It's very clear from his sermon that he did. That he did see before him the people who were responsible. He says, this is in Acts 2, verse 23. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The men who were his executioners were the means by which you did it, but you are guilty. You crucified him. Peter does hold them accountable, but he does not denounce them. He does not call for their punishment. He doesn't urge on them the same fate that they had urged on Jesus. Instead, he speaks grace to them. How could he do it? How could he do that? And how can we follow him? I think Peter, Paul, and above all, Jesus could be this way because they looked at their enemies differently than we see ours. There's a, a clue to this in the words of Peter that I just quoted. He talks about the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, which reminds us of the way that he opened this letter of 1 Peter, talking about that atmosphere of God's sovereignty in all things, God's sovereignty even in our salvation. The knowledge of God's overarching plan puts the actions of his enemies in a larger context for Peter. Paul writes in a similar way in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were ignorant. They didn't know what they were doing, the significance of what they were doing. Now, I realize that before the law, ignorance is no defense. If you murder someone and you go to court, and you say to the judge, you know what? I never understood. I didn't realize homicide was wrong. No one told me I get to get a do-over. Not so much. Ignorance is no defense. And yet, you can see in the way that Peter speaks, the way that Paul speaks, even of their enemies, that they don't look at their enemies eye to eye. They're not looking eye to eye on the same level. Like, you do this to me, I do this to you. Rather, they stand in a different relationship. They look, as it were, 
from above. They see, as it were, through the eyes of God. Seeing the good that God intends, even in the evil intentions of his enemies, changes how Peter sees his enemies, how Paul sees them, how Jesus sees them. Jesus on the cross puts this big idea into a handful of words when he says in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. From the standpoint of the law, they know exactly what they're doing. They are culpable. Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know, they shouldn't be held responsible because they acted in ignorance, because if that were true, they would not need forgiveness. Because if that ignorance were a defense, then you wouldn't have actually done evil. You wouldn't need to be forgiven. They do need to be forgiven. But the grounds for that forgiveness is looking at their actions in light of a larger reality. Jesus is not standing eye to eye with his persecutors. He looks down on them from above. He sees something larger that allows him to have that perspective, to show that mercy. It's not just where you're looking from, though. It's what you see when you look. Where we see the offense, Jesus sees the image of God. To love our enemies and bless the ones who curse us, we have to look at them differently from above, not eye to eye. But when we look, we have to see something different as well. We have to see the image of God in them. There's a little book exerted from Calvin's Institutes. It's called The Guide to Christian Living or The Little Book of, of Christian Life. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, for one thing, it's, it's profound and beautiful. For another, reading this will give you an entirely different impression of Calvin from what you probably have secondhand. But I want to read to you a, a passage where he deals with this because I think he does a good job showing just how thorough this requirement that we love our enemies is. Like how without excuse we are when we seek not to do it. This is what he says. The Lord requires us to do good to all. He makes no exception, even though most people are unworthy if we judge them on their merits. Scripture, however, forestalls us, warning us to pay no attention to human worth in itself, but rather to consider the image of God which is in all of us and which deserves all our respect and affection. If someone then turns up who needs our help, we have no reason to refuse our aid. What if we claim that he is a stranger? We are reminded that the Lord has stamped him with a mark which should be familiar to us. We are thus urged not to despise our own flesh. What if we maintain that the man is worthless and beneath contempt? The Lord replies that he has honored him by causing his own image to shine within him. What if we say we owe him nothing? The Lord tells us that he has put him as a substitute in his own place. We are to think of him as the one for whose sake God has bestowed his blessings on us. Even supposing the man deserved nothing from us, but instead had grossly abused and injured us, that is no reason to stop loving him or offering assistance and support. For if we argue that he deserves only ill of us, God might well ask what ill he himself has done us, he to whom we owe every good thing. For when he commends us to forgive men their sins against us in the Lord's prayer, 
God lays those sins to his own charge. This is the only way we can attain what is not only difficult for human nature, but totally abhorrent to it, namely loving those who hate us, repaying evil with good, and praying for those who slander us. This, I repeat, we can attain if we are careful not to dwell on the evil which men do, but rather to look upon the image of God which they bear, whose worth and dignity can and should move us to love them, to bury their faults which might otherwise repel us. How do you gain the kind of perspective that would allow you to live these words? Like, how do you look from the God's eye view? Like, how do you see the image of God in others instead of seeing the wrong that they do, the evil that they perpetrate? The only possible answer to that is to look to Jesus. To look to Jesus for, for strength and help in doing it. And to look to Jesus to see what it looks like. His example. You've seen this already. As, as we work through Peter, he follows a kind of pattern. He gives you instruction and then he shows you how Jesus did the very thing that he's called you to do. So that no matter how hard it seems, the things that Peter expects, they're really just things Jesus did. Peter's just trying to follow the example of his friend and Lord, Jesus Christ, and urging us to do the same. So we have a kind of Christian duty. As people who believe in Christ, we're expected to live a certain way. And instead of treating the call to duty, the call to love as a kind of duty, instead of thinking of this calling to love your enemies as, as a, a responsibility that you have, a duty you must perform, approach it instead as a form of revelation. The Bible often speaks to us in the language of duty and obligation, the things that we ought to do, the things that we must do. And there is, I would argue, a helpful way of thinking about that and an unhelpful way of thinking about it. Here's the unhelpful way. When the Bible tells us what our duty is, what our responsibilities are, we can take all of those things and imagine that we've been given like a set of rules on how to live the good life, how to be a good person, and think that the purpose of all of this is to kind of give us a, a set of, of like a blueprint for moral righteousness, which really is just a scheme of works righteousness, right? When we think about our duty in this way, it's easy to slip into thinking that the way that we earn God's favor is by keeping these rules. It's unhelpful because it leads us to misunderstand the gospel. And put our faith in something that is not the gospel, that is not grace. It's true that there is a blessing for those who bless, but if all we see is that, that reciprocity, then we miss the deeper truth is being pictured in the call to love. The helpful way, because it's the right way to see our Christian duty, is as a form of revelation. It's a way in which Jesus is revealed to us. Theologians will tell you that God reveals himself in his word, but not only that. That God also reveals himself in action, in deed. That, that revelation is both in word and deed. And you see this if you look in Scripture. 
God reveals himself to Noah by word, right? He gives a verbal warning, and he also reveals himself, his character, in the flood, in the action of the flood. It tells us something about God we wouldn't otherwise know. The same thing is true here. God speaks to us of his love for us, and he reveals that love in Christ. In sending Christ, the action, the deed, is revelatory. It it, it speaks to us, it communicates to us, arguably more than the words alone would. If that's true, if it's true that the deeds of God are revelatory, if they teach us, if they speak to us, Isn't it also true of the deeds he expects from us? The things he calls us to do, the obedience that he calls Christians to do, it is revelatory. In the things we're called to do, in that obedience, we don't just tick off a box that says, yes, we're good people, but rather we learn what it is to be like Jesus. Or to put it even more directly, Through this obedience, we know Jesus. We come to know Him more. If you want to know Jesus, one way to know Him is to study His Word. To see how He's described, how He reveals Himself, what He says about Himself. It's all reliable knowledge of Jesus. Another way, an important way to know Jesus is to love your enemies. Is to bless the ones who curse you. And in that deed, in that obedience, you come to know him more deeply. If you want to know Jesus, walk with him. If you want to know Jesus, follow in his footsteps. The one who loves his enemies and blesses, the ones who curse him, he knows Jesus in a way that those who've only heard about him never can. Those who continue to repay evil with evil despite the fact that they pay lip service to love. What we are called to do only echoes what Jesus has done. When we marvel at the impossibility of it all, how is it possible to love your enemies? This should direct us towards a deeper appreciation of exactly what Jesus did. Exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did not revile those who reviled Him. He did not threaten those who made him suffer, but he endured, trusting in the Father's good plan, honoring the image of God, even in those who put him to death. And if he hadn't, if Jesus was not one who loved his enemies, then we would be without hope. If Jesus did not bless the ones who cursed him, we would be without hope, because that's who we are. He did not bless the ones who curse him. We would have no blessing. He gave himself for us when we were still his enemies. We were still, in Paul's words, children of wrath. That's when he gave himself. That's why the gospel is a ministry of reconciliation. Paul says that in Christ, God was reconciling us to himself. God was making peace between himself and his enemies. Through Christ. Sometimes when we think about our Christian duty, and surely this call to love your enemies, and to bless those who curse you, is, is like the high point of that. It's the highest expression of that. This is the thing that if you could do, you would be following 
in his footsteps as you should. It's challenging to us, I think, because a lot of times we imagine that that the way God works is God has given us a goal and he's left it up to us to figure out the strategies to get us there. But that, that's often good leadership. right? You don't want to micromanage the people who work for you, so you, you lay out the vision, you lay out the goal, and you leave it to them to develop the, the strategies that are going to get you there. That's not what God does. God hasn't given us a goal. God has given us an end, but he's also given us a mean. What he's given us is um, a way with a capital W. A way. Not just a place we're meant to get to somehow, eventually, but a way in which we're meant to get there. And this is the way that we've been called to. Loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us. He doesn't just commend to us the ends, but also the means. The goal is glory. The goal is to be like him, to be with him, to be glorified. But the means, and this matters, the means by which we get there are this difficult call to love. To love as Jesus loved us. To treat others, whether they're deserving or not, the way Jesus has treated us. This is why we must bless the ones who curse us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.